This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Jackson, and I'm joined, as always, by George Smith. George, how are you? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. How, how are you, apart from just as we started joining your head off? Been a, been a long day. Yes, I am tired <laughs> as we record this, but I'm going to try and bring the energy for the podcast. We're in. We're only in week two of the championship season. Can't be <laughs> lagging already. already. But yes, the um, it early starts imposed by work and imposed by my seven-month-old daughter has started to catch up with me a little bit this week. So I am going to be fighting back the yawns, but I'm going to bring the energy because I, it was another good weekend of championship action, which I'm looking forward to dissecting with you over the next hour or so. Um, as always, a reminder to make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed, which you can find on all your usual platforms, and make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at ChampChatPod24. A massive thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Cards Accepted, for supporting the podcast this season. If you're looking to take card payments with no contract or monthly fees, make sure you go and visit cardsaccepted.co.uk. They provide a discount on the RRP of all summer devices, so make sure you go and check them out. And over the next hour, we're going to be looking at another busy weekend of Championship action with only two teams remaining with a 100% record. This is the Championship Chat Podcast. George, we're going to start at the Coventry Building Society Arena where Coventry got themselves their first victory of the season, beating Middlesbrough 3-0 in the early kickoff on Saturday. Bouncing back from the disappointment last weekend with two late goals from Leicester City inflicting defeat. Well, it was their turn this time to turn the screw and get the three points. Obviously, it was interesting to see how Coventry, the mood was around the stadium, around the club, because Gustavo Harmer was, of course, sold late on Friday night to Sheffield United. A move that we'd really sort of expected to happen throughout the summer, as we had with Victor Jokeres. But nonetheless, still still quite a heartbreaking scene for Coventry fans to wake up to on Saturday morning and see Harmer in uh, red and white rather than blue and white. But they put that disappointment to one side and got themselves a big three points. Got themselves, I have to say, I do think that the key moments in this game went against Middlesbrough. And when I say, I say went against Middlesbrough, that it was of their own making as well. But... I do think that Coventry basically were clinical in the right moments in this game. It, it wasn't a 3-0 scoreline, in my opinion, based on the chances and certainly the timing of the chances in the game. You have to say the first goal from Matty Gon's a little bit fortunate in terms of how the ball breaks to him. However, very good predatory finish, which is why they kept him. You know, it was interested from League One. I think Derby County were quite sweet on him during the summer. He stayed, signed a new contract. And I think if they'd lost Godden as well as Gokres, that would have been quite a lot of upheaval in the striking department from two reliable goal scorers. Really good predatory finish, 1-0. Middlesbrough not tight enough in the box, albeit slightly fortuitous how it came to him. And then Middlesbrough did have some big chances. It's, it's undeniable. I'm not saying that Coventry weren't good value for the win, but Borough had some really big opportunities. Brent, uh, Morgan Rogers looked really bright, playing sort of as a number 10 behind Matt Crooks. Brilliant run in the second half, which he, he drove the ball just wide of the, the sort of the top left corner. And then another jinky run where he got him around the back, crosses it over and Silvera skies it over from close range on the stretch. That was a massive chance. And literally moments after they should have equalised through that moment, um, Coventry go down the other end and get the second. Really good finish from Haji Wright, who I said last weekend, I was really impressed with his cameo off the bench. Looked bright, looked energetic, looked like he could score goals in the championship 
Well, he's off the mark now for Coventry. Really good finish into the bottom corner from a second-phase corner kick. There's another chance for Middlesbrough. I think it might have just been before the second goal, actually, where, um, again, Rogers gets to the byline, crossed over, and, and the goalkeeper gets a really good hand to push it onto Matt Crooks, and it goes wide of the post. Not a sitter, but on another day, that goes into the back of the net. And and those are game-changing moments, in fairness. And That's not to take anything away from Coventry, but I think if Middlesbrough had scored at the right moments and they had the chances to do so... I think they could have certainly got something from the match. That said, when the second one went in, the chances dried up a little bit. And then, obviously, the third goal comes in stoppage time with, with Godden's cross taking a huge deflection off Daryl Lenahan and going into the back of the net for 3-0. So, you look at the scoreline, if you'd not watched the game, you'd think, mm, this is a bit worrying for Middlesbrough. They've not really got going. But they were far more creative than they were against Millwall. I do think if they played like they did against Coventry in terms of not maybe play, not played, but if they created the opportunities, that the quality of chances that they created against Coventry, against Millwall the week before, they probably wouldn't have lost that game. And they could probably play this t- game 10 times over and they would at least find themselves on the score sheet with the quality of chances they created. Credit to Coventry, taking nothing away from them. They were clinical. They played well. They, they certainly weren't lucky in any way, shape or form. But Middlesbrough didn't let them off the hook by missing key chances at key moments in the game. Yeah, definitely. Um, I didn't see this game, but I saw the highlights package within the, you know, the highlight show on a, on a Saturday evening where Middlesbrough, like you said, there they had their moments, they had their chances, and as championship games are so often defined these days on those big moments, them defining moments, and when you look at the stats from this match on Saturday lunchtime, the the statistics were fairly evenly poised. To be fair, I mean, there was not a lot in possession. Middlesbrough had more shots than Coventry did. They had more shots. Uh, Sorry, they had slightly fewer shots on target, very slightly. Passing was pretty similar. Corners were the same. So it was, on the on the face of it, quite an evenly poised game. And reading the, the responses from Coventry fans to, to one of our tweets on Sunday morning, they were saying that though they deserved to win the game, Middlesbrough certainly on another day could have taken something from it. But like you said, Coventry were clinical when the opportunities presented themselves. Godden's finish proved that. Hadji Wright's finish was emphatic, though clinical at the same time. But as you said, Middlesbrough, they had their moments and it almost felt like Borough were lacking someone like a Tuba Akpom, someone like a Cameron Archer at the top end of the pitch. And of course, Tuba Akpom, as we record this, I've read this evening that um, he's on the verge of a move to Ajax, which has come quite out of the blue, which is quite an interesting one. Cameron Archer, obviously, of course, back at Aston Villa now. So there is, like I said in our ones to 24s, there is big holes that need filling within this Middlesbrough squad. And now that Tuba Akpom is on his way, it seems... It's an even bigger one that needs filling. And so it's certainly clear where Middlesbrough's priorities lie in the final two and a half weeks or so of the window that's left as we record this. But I think Michael Carrick will, though though of course he'll be very, very disappointed with the fact that his side has taken zero points in their first two games and he's yet to score a goal in the league. They've got a win in the League Cup in the week. But in terms of the league itself, they, they are yet to get off the mark. But there were signs of life at Coventry on Saturday. I think that's the key thing. I think Michael Carrick would be a little bit more concerned if his side weren't creating chances. They were doing that on Saturday. Morgan Rogers, we saw the surging run that he had in the second half. What a goal that would have been, by the way, if that had found the back of the net an early contender for goal of the season. Silvera, he he looked dangerous in, in parts of the game. So I think there is something for Michael Carrick to work with there, but it's quite clear they are missing star quality in key areas of the pitch, which... We we did touch upon in our one to twenty fours with the likes of Giles going back to um, back to Wolves and obviously now sold on to Luton Town. Ramsey went back to to Aston Villa. 
you know, there's been key players that Borough have lost from low knees last season. So it's going to take time for them to adapt. But on the face of it, it is a disappointing start to the season. There's no sugarcoating that. Zero points in the first two, a favourite for automatic promotion. It's not a great start, but there's a long, long, long way to go and things can change quickly. As for Coventry, though, you know, they, they, they obviously lost in the week again to, to Wimbledon in the League Cup. That was a big shock, but they responded so well on Saturday. Like you said, clinical when, when the opportunity presented themselves. I thought Ben Sheaf in the middle was absolutely superb. He bossed that game. He could be so key for Coventry this season. Obviously, Gustavo Harmer has gone now. So, will they turn to a, another signing for, for midfield? I think it's certainly probable with the money they've raised in that sale. They still look a little bit light in terms of depth. Starting eleven looks pretty good but certainly lacking in terms of depth at the moment. However, it's brilliant that Hadji Wright's up and running, just his second league appearance, got that first goal. Matt Godden, he he will do a job for me. He will score goals. He'll get you double figures, won't he? If he, he will. Starts, he'll he'll, he'll kind of average between I don't know, five to ten a season. You know, He'll be around the ten mark. He will knock on the door of double figures at the very least. But I think once Hadji Wright is up to speed, once Ellis Sims is fully up to speed, those two are going to form the most probable partnership. There's no doubt about that. I think but so. Once, once that clicks, that's going to be very, very dangerous for a lot of to, a lot of championship defences to handle. And Sakamoto as well, he looks quite handy. He came off the bench on Saturday. Like the look of him early doors. But like I say, just need that depth. But three points. I think when you consider the, the opening two games that Coventry have had, I think they'll be very satisfied with three points. Leicester away, Middlesbrough home, and it so easily could have been all six when you consider how close Hadji Wright went to winning it last weekend at the King Power. So I think Mark Robbins will be, will be satisfied. He'll be pleased to have got that first win after a couple of defeats in the league and the cup, but they're off the mark and what a way to do it. Yeah, I think, as you say, they'll be satisfied certainly with the performance levels and will feel Definitely. they should have had more than the, the three-point haul that they've got. As you said and touched on there, Chu Brackpom not in the Middlesbrough squad at the weekend. Looks like Lens in Ligue 1. Ajax, Sheffield United, the three clubs that are battling out for his signature and with one year left on his deal, that looks probable to happen. I have to say, personally, I think they should sell him if they can get the right money because he's got one year left on his deal and I'm always a little bit sceptical of a 27-year-old that has a breakthrough season in the way he has as to whether it's a bit of a fluke. And I'm not taking anything away with how good he was last season, but is it sustainable? because it's taken so long for him to even show any signs that he could he's capable of this. And maybe he's just a, a late developer. I'm the first person to always say that development is not a linear process. But for someone of his age, with his contract status, I would be, if there's £15 million on the table, I would certainly be snapping that up personally. But it's no use saying that and doing that if Middlesbrough don't have the time to retain a replacement and gel someone in. So in an ideal world... I think that sort of money would have been on the table three, four weeks ago and they could have brought in a replacement because Middlesbrough look really light, I have to say, and they are missing like Pom big time. But I also think for the long-term best of the squad, I think for someone's stock, I, I would hazard to bet that in two years' time, Tubrack Pom will not be worth £15 million, in my opinion. So if they can get the right money for him and get him sold in a timely manner and get a good replacement in, I would say it's good business, but they've got to do one or the other. They either need him back in the team or they need those funds into the club to get a replacement into the squad. Similar for Coventry, they need uh, to spend some of that money. With, they've obviously recouped on Gustavo Harmer. They've, they've, they were doing so with Giocares, obviously bought Ellis Sims. So I'm intrigued to see how Coventry end the window as well. 
George, the one of two teams that have a 100% record in the championship are Ipswich Town. They beat Stoke City 2-0 at Portman Road to continue their fantastic run. 21 league games unbeaten, of course, across the League One and Championship season so far. Two from two this season. And they were really dominant physically, I thought, in this game. Obviously got ahead from a, a set piece with Wolferden heading in. And they were quite comfy in their shape, you know, Ipswich actually had less of the ball than Stoke possession-wise. And this lends back to the fact that Ipswich are quite comfortable either playing on the front foot in terms of dominating the ball or they're quite happy to sit in their shape. And defensively, they were excellent last season in their League One season. And even the season before that, when Kieran McKenna first came in, it was actually defensively they were more impressive than offensively. And then that followed in the season after where they started to get the patterns of play. Um, and started to rip teams apart. Alex Neal said in his post-match press conference that Stoke deserved to lose the game, and I think that was a, a fair reflection. And someone like Alex Neal's coming out and saying that, I think that probably sells the story. And they were just happy to to sit, suffocate, press quite high. Although they, they were they had less of the ball, they were quite happy to sort of get on top of um, Stoke. They didn't give them time to play, suffocate them, and, and prevented them getting into any real rhythm, which. That was the sort of key for them in League One promotion. Um, West Burns really bright. He set up Caden Jackson to seal the points with a, a nice ball into the box and a cool finish into the corner. Really good performance from Ipswich. They've the, been so good at Portman Road for such a long time now and look like they're going to carry that on through into the championship season. But I think it bodes well that they can mix things up a little bit. They can try and dominate the ball and be a bit more on the front foot or they can match teams physically and they can you know, try and do more off-ball works, pressing high and just trying to be a little bit more frustrating of the opposition and then clinical and take the chances. Yeah, definitely. They're a very, very good football team. I think that's the way to play it. They, they, they play some lovely stuff. And although they didn't win the League One title last season, they were, of course, edged out by Plymouth Argyle. They were, in terms of style, the best team in that league last season. They played some wonderful football at times. And we saw towards the end of last season when they went on that remarkable run, the way that they blew teams away, literally. I mean, they put six past Exeter, they put six past Charlton in the latter weeks of the season, 3-0 away at Barnsley, 3-0 away at Peterborough, big games they stepped up. And they've just adapted to life in the Championship like a duck to water, haven't they? You've mentioned there that that long unbeaten run that they're now on in league football, 53 points they've amassed from the last 63 on offer. It's an unbelievable record. And Kieran McKenna, is a manager that obviously has learned from some of the very best at Manchester United. He worked with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he worked with Jose Mourinho. He, he's come into Ipswich, his first managerial job, steadied the ship and gradually built it up and built it up. And now he's at a point where he's getting to showcase his management style, his style of play in arguably the most competitive division in the world. And Ipswich have adapted to this with ease. Their first two games as well, I think, you've got to appreciate as well. They've not had the easiest of opening two fixtures, I think. I mean, a trip to Sunderland, playoff semi-finally last, last year. Stoke City brought in some good signings this summer, won their first two games in League and Cup. And they made mincemeat of them, really. They were really, really good. Dominated the game. Wes Burns was electric down that right-hand side. Massimo Luongo dominant, dominant in the midfield again. And I think what the most interesting thing is about Ipswich, and certainly that that win on on this, <coughs> excuse me on Saturday lunchtime, was the fact that they didn't have a single new face in the starting eleven. George Hurst obviously has returned permanently, but was on loan last season. So in terms of 
an actual new face that wasn't there last year. There was not a single new signing in that eleven, And here we are after two games, Ipswich are top of the championship. Of course, you can't take any sort of guidance on the league table, I don't think, for me, until after 10 games, sort of late September, mid-October, I think is when it properly begins to take its shape. However, can you imagine the confidence it must be giving those players, the fans, the whole club to have come into this new league, four seasons out of it, to be top of the league after the first two games? And like I say, having not had the easiest of opening two fixtures, and they've they've scored four goals in those, they've conceded one. So they're on for a really, really good start here. And I think you look at Ipswich's next couple of fixtures, they've got QPR away next, and then they've got Leeds at home to, to wrap up August. That's a you know, there's a there's a chance that they could end the month with maximum points here. QPR, obviously we'll talk about them shortly, but that'll be their first home game of the season next week, and I'm sure they'll be up for that. So it will be a tough test for Ipswich. But they just play such fluent, free flowing football that is so pleasing on the eye. And Kieran McKenna, of course, has been the mastermind of all of this. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they kick on. But as starts go, Ipswich couldn't have dreamt of anything any better. Obviously, winning the Cup as well. So it's three wins out of three in all competitions. But just going back to that stat that I mentioned a few moments ago, 53 points out of the last 63 available. The last lost on the 21st of January away at Oxford. And it's now, as we record this, the 13th of August. It's a remarkable run. And dare you say it, who are going to be the next team to beat Ipswich Town? Because when they do, they should be proud of themselves. Because this is at the moment, it's going to—it's like a—it's like a fast-flowing train that is just un, unbeatable. Really, you can't stop it. So uh, let's see if QPR can stop them in the tracks next weekend. But I mean, what a start! Two wins out of two, top of the pile. They couldn't have dreamt for anything any better. It was all about the Brady bunch at St Andrews, George. Birmingham City beat Leeds United one nil, but. If we're being honest, the off-field action took centre stage at St Andrews <laughs> rather than that on it. Of course, Tom Brady was in the crowd, interviewed on the pitch afterwards. And for Leeds United, absolute chaos in the transfer market. Willie Nonto refusing to travel and train um, with the team, wants to move back to the Premier League to Everton. Looks like the most likely destination. Equally, Sinistera not involved. Unavailable, said Daniel Farker. No further explanation on that, so it's fair to assume that similar fate has fallen to him. In honesty, it wasn't a great game. It was quite a tepid match with both teams to and fro in a little bit and it wasn't till last a little bit of quality at the end. Really nice ball from Dembele out to the uh, rampaging Ethan Laird. Got into the box. Clumsy, clumsy challenge by Dan James. Penalty. Correct decision in my opinion. He, he gets in front of him and he does catch him, although I do think it's a genuine attempt for the ball. And then converted by Big Duke, Lukas Jukovic putting the ball in the back of the net. I thought probably Tricky Dembele, brightest player on the pitch, if I'm being honest, for both teams. Leeds missed having someone like, obviously, uh, Nonto or like Sinistera who could run and cause problems with the pace and trickery. He gave Ailing a real torrid time down that left-hand side. But for Birmingham, obviously the takeover's been met with, with huge euphoria. There's been a lot of good headlines about the club's transfer business from us as well we've been really impressed with them big fan of John Eustace and the work he's been doing there and little bits of stadium improvement here and there have, have certainly gone been well received by the fans it does feel like they're turning corner and obviously having a big name like Tom Brady in their corner how much does it actually influence things on the pitch probably very little in truth but commercially and certainly in terms of just getting your name in front of people again as an attractive brand as we've seen at Wrexham is invaluable so 
and let's be fair, if any fan base has suffered enough over the last 10, 15 years that deserves a little bit of good fortune and a bit of good luck, it's it's Birmingham City. So I think pretty even game on the pitch, but certainly off it for Birmingham. Things definitely moving in the right direction and I would definitely fancy them. You know, Birmingham haven't finished in the top half of the championship for a very long time now and that's got to be the aim for them and then keep building on that. And it does feel like a distinct possibility this season. Yeah, I, I fully agree. That's the thing. I, I don't... Well, I could be proven wrong. It's when we're only two games in, they've taken four points. But I can't see Birmingham breaking into the top six this season. And I think a majority of Birmingham fans don't expect that. They're realistic about this and accept that this is going to be a, a long-term goal, a long-term project with a lot of moving parts and a lot of pieces to, to you know to fall into place and things to settle down. But four points on the first two games is is very good. They progressed in the League Cup as well. But obviously, there's so much focus off the pitch at the moment with the changes that have been implemented so quickly with Tom Wagner, the owner. Tom Brady, obviously, now coming in. And he was, as you said, he was there on Saturday and all the attention and all the focus was on him as he's going to be seven-time Super Bowl champion. He's, he's an icon of the NFL. And like you said there, you, you, you make a comparison to Wrexham with having big sort of big-name owners. And that's sort of the parallels you can sense with this Birmingham project and I think that's what it is for Birmingham it's a project the the interview Tom Wagner gave to ITV after the game was was all about wanting to involve the community get people associated with Birmingham City make them make it a club to be proud of again and historically Birmingham City Football Club is a very very big football club and uh, you said are there any fans really realistically that have sort of consistently been in the championship of the last 10 years or so that have suffered as much as Birmingham City fans not really year after year Though they've managed to avoid it, they've flirted with relegation. They've scraped out of it at the very last throw of the dice at the end of the season. But under John Eustace now and under this new ownership, it feels like there's a sense of direction. There's planning in place. There's a clearer identity of the way the club wants to move forward, both on and off the pitch. And the signings have been really, really inspiring. And I think, to be honest with you, I think Birmingham have let us down, haven't they, in the last few weeks? They seem to have eased off the gas a little bit. I don't think there's been a new arrival since the season kicked off. I'm sure they'll be doing more business before the end of the end of the window in a couple of weeks' so time. But I think as well, in terms of matters on the pitch and the, and the the two results they've had so far in the league, I see four points, very respectable start. But you know, so many new signings in that eleven that John uses that to bed in. It could have quite easily gone wrong. Even you, someone like Ivan Sunjic that obviously yeah. has been very much forgotten about to bring He's him been back into quality. Fold, him Christian Bielik, they they've dominated proceedings in that double pivot in midfield. But the likes of Laird. Buchanan in there. Obviously, Dion Sanders has come back. Dembele, Keshi Anderson. You know, there's, there's players in that in that squad that are sort of Keshi Anderson, for example, who are no. I don't think this was any disrespect. Sort of your lower end championship players, and he wasn't very good for Blackpool. But John Eustace seems to be yeah, a manager that sort of sort of seems capable of picking these gems up and then developing them further. And he was good in pre-season. He joined after a trial period. He, he started on on Saturday. And then you look at the options they've had off the bench as well in those games. And Mayoshi, who I think has got something really good about him, they were praising him after the League Cup win in the week at Cheltenham. And then you've got Lukas Jukovic, who I think is 34 now, I think he is, stepping up off the bench, slams in the last gas penalty, still got it. But it's that sort of experience, though Birmingham want to move forward, it's that little jot of experience that can still be so important. And he'll play a key role for Birmingham this season, even though... I think we all know and understand they still want another striker. They do need one. They need a younger operator up front. However, John Eustace has clearly got the backing of the owners. 
It's clearly a relationship that's got respect both ways. It's, you see so many owners come in now from overseas and they immediately want to bring their own manager in. That doesn't seem to be the case at Birmingham. They want that continuity because John Houston, the circumstances, did a really good job last year. So I'm pleased that they've kept him on and things are looking up for them. And like we've both said, that club has suffered enough over the last decade or so. So really encouraging start they've had. For Leeds, however, not, not so good at all. No, I think it's fair to say Daniel Farker needs the window to shut one way or the other before they'll resemble anything like a coherent football team because we've got no idea and we've got no idea. Daniel Farker's got no idea by the looks of things who is staying between game to game, what his squad's going to look like. He didn't have, obviously, Nonto available in midweek or at the weekend. Sinistera the same. Jack Harrison's having a medical at Everton, if reports are to be, uh, be correct as we record this episode. So it's really hard to know what the lead squad's going to look like. And unlike Leicester City, unlike Southampton, they've not recouped a great deal of money either. Now, I don't think cash is a real problem because they've obviously had the takeover this summer with the 49ers. So I don't think funds are a big problem, but they haven't taken any big money in like, for example, Ward-Prowse going, Lavi is going to go. Um, Leicester obviously sold Madison and Barnes. So Leeds haven't got that war chest particularly unless the 49 is going to fund it. And and the squad needs some certainly in attacking areas. And also, I think they need a centre-half pretty desperately, although I think Joe Rodon should be a good signing that could help them. Him and Charlie Cresswell will probably be my pick at centre-half and see how they go forward. But they've got the spine and like the, the bits, but the, the lacking in depth and the lacking in quality at the top end of the pitch, particularly if Nonto and Sinistera don't have a future at Ellen Road. So... Game to game, it's very hard to know for Daniel Farker what the squad's going to look like and that makes it hard for us to dictate what our opinion should be of Leeds United. So they really need the window to shut and I don't think we'll see the best of Leeds until October, November time when they've got a more settled squad and the new signings, which invariably will need to come. Um, they've settled in and see how things play out at Ellen Road. We'll go to East Yorkshire now, George. Hull City, they beat Sheffield Wednesday 4-2 in a very, very one-sided match in truth. They had 73% of possession, imposed themselves on the game, and despite falling behind to a deflected Delgado strike, they showed their quality and they were the better team. Two brilliant goals from uh, Tufan. Either side of her, tucking away a penalty kick from the spot. Really, really important win for Hull City, but not just the win as well. I think I think the manner of the victory was really important for Liam Rossini's side because I know it sounds daft for only two games into season, but it does feel like a little bit of pressure, a little bit of nerves are starting to creep in a little bit about how the team were performing. They didn't end the season brilliantly last season in terms of underlying numbers particularly. So to go and get beaten on opening day in the last minute, lose in the cup in midweek to Doncaster pretty poorly as well. They needed a performance as much as a victory. So to do that, um, and in the manner as well that they did it, as I say, uh, two, fan do, two fantastic goals. The first goal in particular stand out into the top corner. And then the second, uh, the, the third one as well, a really good strike and the penalty, as I say, to, to, get, to start his hat-trick off. Really good performance to have 73% of possession and impose yourself on a, on a local rival, if we're calling them local rivals, I suppose they are both in Yorkshire. Um, really impressive and, and a, a performance that Hull really needed that will get I think a lot of people have naturally bought into Liam Rossini because it's quite, you know, I think we like him naturally. I think he's quite easy to like as a neutral. You'll naturally give him your trust rather than be sceptical. But I think a few of those believers are starting to 
edging to a few doubts creeping in. So they needed a statement performance as much as a result. They got that and a really good win for Hull City. Definitely. And like you said, they, they had a really bad result in the week against Doncaster in the, in the first round of the Carabao Cup. And reading reports following that game, the Hull fans said they were genuinely atrocious that evening. But they responded in, in the perfect way. And when you've got a match winner in Ozan Tufan, a quality Turkey, Turkish international capable of doing what he did on Saturday, you're always going to have a chance of winning any game. What a, what a player he is. I was really impressed by him last season. He did really, really well in his debut season in England. And to get See, a hat trick, I thought he did well in times, but I thought there was a, there was patches of games where he went missing. There was patches. Time. It wasn't as there consistent was as I wanted because you could see the was, was there. Yeah, consistency was lacking from his game at times last season. Although there was sort of a real sense of swagger about his play when he was on his A game, he was a Correct. really technical footballer, and we saw that at the weekend. That his second goal of the hat trick was absolutely breathtaking. It was a stunning strike into the top corner of the of the net, and. I think Hull overall, it was a game that they absolutely dominated from first whistle to last. The possession stats show that. The whole, in fact, the whole of the match stats show that. 15 shots to Sheffield Wednesday's five. They, they, they completed nearly 700 passes. They were completely in control of this game. And I think the thing for Liam Rossini, like you said, he's, a, he's one of those characters that I don't think anybody in football dislikes. I think everybody's got a lot of respect for him. His dad was very popular as a player, Leroy Rossini. And Liam Rossini obviously played for Hull as a player. He's got that that mutual connection with the Hull City supporters. They were very pleased when he went in there as manager last season. And I think Hull have got the potential to continue progressing under him, but I do think it will be a gradual progress, to be fair. I've seen a lot of people tipping them for the top six this year. Myself and you in our 1-24s didn't buy into that. We could be proven wrong. It's very possible. Time will tell, of course. But I do think there are teams who are better than them and better equipped. However. When you've got a player like Tufan and, and Seri in the middle, Regan Slater, I like, he's kicked on a lot in the last 12 months. Liam Delap obviously got his goal on the opening day of the season at Norwich. He'll be hoping more follow. So there is a lot there for Liam Rossini to work with and develop. I still think they need a little bit more before the window shuts, which I'm sure will will arrive. However, there's certainly a base for him to work with that could, could you know, see Hull progress even further this season. I, I like the options that he was able to bring off the bench at the weekend in, in Connolly, Estupanan, Cyrus Christie was an unused substitute and obviously he was superb last season at right back. So Liam Rossini has certainly got a lot there to going for him, a lot to work with and a lot to, lot to improve with. I just feel that they need a little bit more, but nevertheless, a superb performance at the weekend, a superb victory, one they fully merited, fully deserved, but stats proved it, performance proved it. And I think the the goal for him now will be, can he get this whole side to find a little bit of consistency? Can they string together a run of three or four wins in a row? Let's see what they can do. But an excellent win and obviously off the mark after the opening day defeat at Norwich and, and defeat to Doncaster in the Cup. Concern for Sheffield Wednesday, I think it's fair to say, a, a pretty shambolic performance in truth. Some of the goals they gave away, particularly the fourth one, of course. I thought the penalty was a little bit soft. I do have to say that, and at one nil, that's obviously a big moment in the game. It probably is a foul, but it just felt it probably would be a foul anywhere else on the pitch. So it was probably a bit contradictory to say it was soft, but I don't know if it was definitely a penalty. But to give up such so much of the ball to do that against Southampton is one thing. To do that against Hull City, with no disrespect, to only have twenty seven percent possession. Yes, they lost Barry Bannon at half time due to injury, but there's enough technicians in that Wednesday midfield to be better in possession, it was a bit baffling tactically. 
There were some very odd selections as well in the team in terms of playing four centre-halves. I'm not sure what the what the intent was there of someone like Reese James that they signed in the summer, not even making the match day squad. Marvin Johnson's not played a single game, a uh, single minute either in League or Cup. Very strange. And, and the fourth goal, if I'm being truthful, it's a shocker from a Hecway. It's nowhere near either the goalkeeper. That's, I don't even know what he's trying to do. Um, and that summed up the performance, really. I would be concerned if I was a Wednesday fan because tactically... And I, I know it's really early, I know we're two games in, but tactically I, I am concerned about what the plan is, what the identity is, because what Cisco Munoz is saying in the press, what he said during pre-season, how he wants this team to play and look, his tactical decisions in terms of team selection and the way his team are going out and playing completely contradict what he's trying to do. And that is a real concern for me. Yes, there's a lot of new players that need bedding in. Yes, he obviously needs time. But I would be concerned if I were a Sheffield Wednesday fan about how they're setting up. It just doesn't make much sense to me and completely contradicts what the manager's saying in the press. And that is either disingenuous or really concerning. Maybe I'm being overcritical, it's early days, but I would be concerned particularly at the manner of this performance. Yeah, I think you've got to be, haven't you? I, I don't think there's any way of sort of skirting round it and sort of saying that this is a new team, give it time to gel. Yes, there's a lot of new bodies that need to need integrate into this team, a new manager that needs to work out his style. However, is there really an excuse for giving up so much of the ball in their opening two league games? Like you said, Southampton, you can kind of make an excuse for that. And, and we were both at that opening game last Friday night and, and we both said Wednesday in the second half, when they did step up a little bit and apply a little bit of pressure, they did look as though they had something about them. No disrespect to Hull, but this is a complete different kettle of fish compared to Southampton. Wednesday should have been going to Hull with the ambition of trying to get a result, whether it be a point or all three. And they just allowed Hull City to dominate this game in a way that Wednesday sort of looked at it and thought, we're not going to be able to go toe-to-toe with Hull City. We'll let them have the ball. We'll see if we can, when we grab it, can we do anything with it? Wednesday have completed less than 500 passes in their opening two games. Hull completed over 690 minutes on Saturday. The formation Chisco Munoz is playing, I'm not really sure what it is. He's already hinted at going to a back five. Callum Patterson is playing as a right winger. He played as a right back in the opening game. Delgado's kind of drifting across the left-hand side. Windass is rowing between the left and the centre. They seem to be just hitting long balls, diagonals out to the flanks. It they doesn't feel like there's a great plan, does there? I found the no, Michael situation very strange as not well. That they could potentially be open to letting someone this go is... score 20 goals from last season. And this is my argument about, about Wednesday, of course. Obviously, they came up last season. There was terrific harmony at that football club. Darren Moore, despite them, yes, they probably did blow the League One title, but he got them over the line. And I think any manager that can overturn a four-goal deficit in a playoff semi-final is, is a damn good manager, pretty much, to be fair, you know not only as a football man, but in terms of being able to motivate a crowd of players. And I can guarantee you, in these opening two games, Wednesday would have been far more competitive and in the faces of the opposition they have been in these opening two games. I fully appreciate that a manager that's come in has got to get his team used to how he wants them to play, got to embed in, embed in a lot of new faces. There is surely, though, no excuse for a bunch of professional footballers not able to pick, pick one out in the same jersey as them. They seem to be really, really struggling to retain possession. And the signings, I've got to be honest, though obviously whenever a club makes a flurry of new signings, there is a little bit of excitement that comes with that. These signings do not fill me with confidence at all. Unproven. I, I don't 
I don't see any sort of strategy to what Wednesday are trying to do in the transfer market. Yes, the average age of the additions has come down, which is a good thing, but it seems a very scattergun approach. They're coming from all different angles of Europe. We've seen, obviously, Bambo Diaby come from Preston. We've seen Ashley Fletcher arrive on loan from Watford. And aside from that, the rest are unknown quantities, completely unknown quantities. There's a lot of excitement, of course, about Anthony Musabra, who's come from AS Monaco on a permanent deal. Looks very good in highlight clips. But I, I was there against Stockport in the League Cup in the first round last Tuesday evening. And yeah, he's a young lad in a new country, in a new team. He's going to need time. I fully appreciate that. However, there were just so many basics as a winger that he should have been doing that he wasn't doing. And at the end of the day, there's obviously been a lot of articles that people have dug out, like he was linked with Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Juventus three or four years ago. If he was at that level, that good, he would not be at Sheffield Wednesday. Let's be let's be honest about that. So there's a lot of work for Chisco Munoz to do, a hell of a lot of work. He's already hinted at changing to a back five. That's going to be interesting to see. Wednesday, realistically, they can't get any more defensive if they tried with the way things are going. They're, they've not got the... They've not got the fluidity to get on the ball and get forward. They've got no progressive runners in that team. Let's be honest. They've got no, certainly out of the 11 that started at Hull on Saturday, probably with the exception of Josh Windass, they've not got anybody who can run and carry the ball forward. So that is a big problem for Wednesday. They, they've got to try and find some sort of rhythm, a settled 11 that is going to work for them. Because let's be honest, the fans, though they appreciate time is going to be needed, if they continue to lose games, if they continue to give up possession so easily, patients are going to wear thin very quickly. And let's not forget as well, Wednesday, they are charging an extortionate amount for ticket prices, the highest in the league by a country mile. The fans deserve better. They've been put through the mill for the best part of 20 years, 25 years. It felt like the club was finally moving in the right direction again after the playoffs, the, the drama that they brought at the end of last season. There was harmony. There was a spirit there. It felt like the club was together as one and Darren Moore was leading something special. That's obviously gone. It's been ripped apart and it just feels like an absolute shambles at the moment. Two games into the season, can't believe we're, we're sat here saying that. But I think out of all the 2014 in this league, there cannot be a fan base that is as disgruntled as it has been through the summer because of the lack of time it took to get a manager, the lack of time it took to take, get signings through the door. Of course, it's going to take time. It may come good. It is quite possible it can come good. But at the moment, even including pre-season friendlies, there is nothing to suggest that Chisco Munoz's plan is coming to fruition at this moment in time. Did you need to get that off your chest? I did. I felt like it, yeah. I hope it came across sensibly and structured. I'm a, I am a little bit frustrated. I'm not going to lie as a Wednesday fan. I am. However, I, I am concerned, early doors. I know it's only two games and things can change very, very quickly especially in this league. But based on these opening three games, including the cup match, what I'm seeing so far, it's very, very hard to put your finger on what is trying to be achieved in terms of a style of play. Let's go to the Cardiff City Stadium now, where Queen's Park Rangers got their first win of the season and unlikely victory after that opening day thumping against Watford. They beat Cardiff 2-1, as I say, in South Wales and took advantage of some pretty haphazardous Cardiff defending for the opener. Callum O'Dowder dawdling on the ball and Sinclair Armstrong taking advantage. And he was the architect in, for everything that was good about QPR in this game. And if they're going to play deep, play a little bit more direct, play on the counter-attack, Sinclair Armstrong is the right person to have at the top end of the pitch because he was a real menace. He 
put the afterburners on for the second goal as well, leaving Gutas for dead. Really good composure as well. Took his time. You thought, oh, has he just left it too long? But no, perfect pass into Kenneth Palu, fired in the second. And he didn't really get a great opportunity last season, Sinclair Armstrong, because he had some injuries. Everyone thought that last year was going to be his breakthrough season. And it didn't quite happen for him for a number of reasons. Obviously, the constant changes in the dugout, which are well documented, the different styles from uh, Mick Beale's you know, possession-based staff to Neil Critchley to all the way to Gareth Ainsworth ball. Um, but it feels like with some of the exits, some of the um, opportunities that now might be available with the squad thinning out a little bit, he's the sort of person that can get QPR up the pitch, can play on the shoulder, can potentially looks like he can get goals. And I was actually probably more impressed with the second goal that he set up for Powell, the way that he burst past the defender, the way that he took his time as well to pick out the right pass rather than making a rash decision. And for someone who's so young coming through the academy who hasn't got a, that back catalogue of experience in championship games, that was really, really impressive. And if he can stay fit, he could be a real asset for QPR going forward. Obviously, they had to sit deep a little bit. Ugbo got Cardiff one back. But that was a really encouraging result for QPR. And, and QPR had a few results last season. Obviously, they beat Stoke and they beat Burnley. But there wasn't much of a plan, really, was there? It was a little bit smash and grab in both games. You didn't see how they could take that performance and the goals they scored. You couldn't see how that could be replicated or that could be sustainable over a course of games. However, looking at the Cardiff game, and yes, there was a big mistake in the first goal with O'Dowd getting robbed and a tapping from a few yards. But I saw a plan. I actually saw how that could work and get QPR points moving forward if they can keep Armstrong fit if they can get chair on the ball a little bit more, if they can either sell Willock and reinvest that money or they can use him. That was probably the most encouraging victory I've seen from QPR under Gareth Ainsworth where I saw a plan that actually could be used moving forward. Steve Cook's going to be a really good signing at centre-back, I think. Let's be fair, looking at the the options they had last weekend, any sort of centre-back with any pedigree was going to be a good signing. But let's not disrespect Steve Cook and let's remember that 18 months ago, he played a massive part in helping Nottingham Forest get promoted into the Championship. Sorry, from the Championship into the Premier League. And then obviously got cast aside like a lot of players did after the promotion. He's got experience. He's not a bottom-end Championship player by any means. Yes, age isn't on his side, but he could help really galvanise that group. So really good week for QPR on and off the field. And I was really encouraged by that performance, particularly from Sinclair Armstrong. How the mood can change. I think that's the best way to describe it after obviously such a thumping, disastrous opening day performance. I don't think anybody saw this one coming, did they? I mean, you had Cardiff down as a banker. I backed Cardiff to win myself at the weekend. I think probably 99% of the people who follow championship football would have expected Cardiff to win this game. But we know the championship has the the ability to spring a surprise and this was a major one and I think you've hit the nail on the head there with Sinclair Armstrong. It appeared to give QPR a new lease of life, something fresh, something vibrant. A player that obviously has the club very close to his heart. We saw in his interview that he gave after the game, it meant the world to him to get that first goal in in QPR colours. And all of a sudden, Gareth Ainsworth has managed to mastermind a really good away victory that not only the club needed, but he desperately needed as well. I think if they'd have lost this game and lost it badly like they did in the opening day, he, he would have been under severe pressure, albeit two games in. However, when you've got someone like Sinclair Armstrong who can spearhead that attack, a big physical imposing figure, you've got chair in and around him, Paul Smith, Lyndon Dykes as well playing off him. 
you've got players there that can do something. Gareth Ainsworth, obviously, we know his style is very unique. It's not what many of us would describe as pleasing on the eye football. But there was certainly more spark to it than we've seen in recent months at, at Cardiff on Saturday. There seemed to be more of a, an understanding between the players of what they wanted to do. And I think a lot of that will extend from having a really good sense of experience through the spine of the team. And you look at that on, on Saturday with Begovic, Steve Cook in the, in the back line, Morgan Fox as well. We, he's been around the block quite a bit now. Elias Chair. There are good players within that team. When you look at that QPR squad on paper in terms of individual players, it's not a bad side, really. So I think the challenge for Gareth Ainsworth is, can this prove not to be a flash in the pan? That's what he's got to do. He's got to try and get a sort of cohesion out of this QPR team to make it work, to make it click, to find some consistency. And as you saw in his post-match interview after the game, you could sense that they'd work really, really hard for this, for this victory. He was immensely proud of the players. He always is, to be fair to him. He always He, he never goes in full on attack on his players. He always defends him. Uh, defends them, I should say. So I think QPR will take a lot of confidence from this victory because Cardiff were, were, were seconds away from getting a really impressive opening day when at Leeds they played very, very well, particularly in that first half at Ellen Road last weekend. Looked a very difficult fixture on paper. But to go there and get three points should be such a morale-boosting, confidence-boosting win for, for this squad of players. So let's see how they progress. Let's see how they kick on. It's one win. It's a starting point. They're on the board. They're off the mark. But I think the challenge for Gareth Ainsworth now is can he find some consistency? They still need a few more players for me, even though he admitted last week that they are not not likely to do much else. But let's see what can happen. Things can change very quickly in the window, but a big weight lifted off his shoulders, a big weight lifted off the players' shoulders. So let's see how things go. But they're off the mark, as I say. But I think the, the big thing now is, is consistency. Have QPR got it in the locker to say, go on a run, find some wins and slowly progress and slowly develop under Gareth Ainsworth. Because, as I say, individually, if you break that squad down, there are some good championship players within that within that starting eleven that started at the weekend. West Brom, they beat Swansea City 3-2. They were 3-0 up and made a little bit of a meal of it towards the end of the match, but an encouraging performance, certainly for at least 75 minutes. They looked home and hose to say that they made the task very difficult for themselves. Interesting change of shape, had to move to a 3-4-3 with... Brandon Thomas Asante out and Josh Mazur only fit enough for the bench. Just highlighting again, although that starting eleven is quite strong for championship level, the lack of depth in that West Brom squad is quite alarming. Pretty much filled with youngsters and injuries, of course, have been a big problem, particularly at the top end of the pitch with Dean Garner out long term, Adam Reach, Daryl DK, of course, the big one. But set pieces were pretty important in this win for them. Semi Ajayi heading home. Uh, and some fortune with the second one, with it bouncing off Carl Rushwisham going into the net for the second one. And then, having gone 3-0 up, let Swansea back in with two corners of their own. Harry Darling, who obviously made the mistake as well for the penalty kick, uh, which was converted by John Swift. He headed home to make that one apiece in terms of contributions to each goal. Um, and then... Nathan Wood as well heading in after a bit of a goal mouth scramble. So it got a bit messy at the end for West Brom, but they got themselves over the line. Ultimately, as much as I like Carlos Coran, and I think there is some strength in that starting eleven, there is a real lack of depth in the squad, isn't there? And that was underlined by the formation change by Matt Phillips playing up front, basically, um, with Swift and Wallace close to him to try and just get some sort of support at the top end of the pitch. Starting eleven's good but it, it desperately needs some depth. And with West Brom's financial 
situation. Um, it's hard to imagine them getting buckets more business done before the window is done. That's the challenge. That is the challenge, isn't it? Carlos Cobran is effectively going to have to work with what he's got until the situation changes or resolves itself. So I think the biggest relief for him will be that they're off the mark. I think that's the main thing. Obviously, they lost their opening game. And at home. I think yeah. you need that home big, form. Big crowd as well, they were saying on, on Saturday at the Hawthorns. A really big crowd in. So that's got to count for something. And you always want to win your first home game. Obviously, they lost in the week at, at Stoke City in the League Cup as well. So it was vitally important they got off the mark. And I think to have scored three goals, albeit one of which was very fortuitous, one was a penalty. You've still got to fashion those openings and those opportunities to get into the positions. The fact that they... They play without a recognisable striker on the pitch from the start. I think that's got to be encouraging for Carlos Cobra, knowing that he's got players who can step up and score goals. So I think it's quite clear where the problem is going to lie for, for West Brom. Is there going to be room? Is there going to be the potential for them to get another striker in before the window shuts? Let's see what happens. Josh Madger wants up to speed, should be able to provide some sort of thrust in forward areas. But for, for 73 minutes, this was a really commanding West Brom and Chalman performance. They were dominant. They, they they raced into that 2-0 lead within five minutes of the second half. They were coasting, they were cruising. They, by all accounts, they played some decent stuff. They 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 obviously, in, in, typically against Swansea, they didn't have more of the ball. Swansea dominating possession as they so often do in the Swansea manner, yet they were the most effective when they had the ball. So that's going to count for something for Carlos Corbrand. But I think you'll be disappointed in the fact that they conceded two goals in the latter stage of the game when they were cruising so much and quite easily could have let a three-point uh, three points become one point. So there is obviously work to work to do on the training ground in that sense. However, I think at this point in the season, however it comes, regardless of how you do it, you just want to get that first three points on the board sooner rather than later. They have achieved it within the opening two games. Blackburn, obviously, they, they were edged out 2-1 on the opening day, but they've returned to the home ground, got that first one on the board. And the objective now is to... Uh, is to try and progress a little bit further. And obviously, a, a tasty trip up next for Carlos Cobran going back to Leeds. Friday night game this uh, this coming week in the Championship, Leeds away. Very interesting game on paper. That one should be a belter, really. When everybody, I'm sure, will remember the, the Leeds 4, West Bromwich Albion nil game a few years back when Pablo Hernandez scored after less than 20 seconds, which no doubt Sky will be reminiscing about when the two sides meet on Friday night. So that'll be an interesting one to, to watch, see how that plays out. But I think the the biggest takeaway for West Brom, most importantly, three points on the board. On to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Preston North End off the off the mark as well. Um, with their first victory, <laughs> they beat Sunderland two one at Deepdale. Two slightly fortunate goals, it has to be said. Or scru- a bit scruffy in terms of the way that they came about. But North End won't care one bit. Huge deflection on the uh, Frocker Jensen strike, which came off Will Keane, I think. Uh, and goes in completely wrong-footing Anthony Patterson and rolling into the other corner of the net. And then the second one as well, ball bobbling, bobbled off. I think it was a, a double deflection that took it through. Having said that, once it's through, really nice finish from Frocky Hansen, who looks already like he's going to be a pretty nice pickup from Preston North End. They've done a lot of work over the summer trying to develop their network overseas to try and really take advantage of that market, which a lot of championship clubs have tried to do, particularly with the the new rules on work permits and, and GBE points. And Frocky Hansen definitely looks like a goal-scoring midfielder who can offer them something. And having lost Daniel Johnson, who obviously a couple of seasons ago now had a really, really good goal-scoring season, but was always a midfielder capable of chipping in with goals and creativity. Jensen looks like someone that could definitely provide that for them. Really calm finish for the winning goal. Um, a little bit of defensive 
frailties in terms of Sunderland's equaliser. Young Kian Best, who's playing at left wing back at the moment with Alvaro Fernandez, obviously back at Manchester United, Robbie Brady injured, so they haven't managed to bring anyone in yet, although that is a priority position for Ryan Lowe. A little bit of naivety, hauling down Jack Clark with a shirt tug that was pretty obvious and uh, Clark picking himself up and converting. Low full of praise, though, for the 17-year-old who's done really well in the opening two games and in the Cup. I think there was a little bit of nervousness about going into the season with him having to play and whether they would put someone more senior perhaps and have to put a square peg in round holes. But Ryan Lowe's given him his faith, given his confidence, and although there was obviously a bit of um, inexperience with the, the mistake to give away the penalty, I think the way he bounced back and the mentality will have impressed Lowe you know, let's be fair, he's not going to be shocked that he's got a 17-year-old playing at left wing back who's going to make mistakes against one of the best wingers in the championship. It's going to happen. Um, but the way he bounced back was really impressive. So some good signs from Preston. Yes, a little bit of fortune in the way some of the goals came about, but decent start with four points on the board, decent base to build from. And given they still need a left wing back, they really need a striker too. I think Ryan Lowe will be happy to have got four points on the board, given how much work there probably still is to do in the transfer market. Yeah, definitely fully agree. I think four points from a possible six, bearing in mind that the, the two opponents that they've had a difficult trip to Bristol City on the opening day and then a Sunderland side that obviously visited Preston as recently as the final day of last season when they snuck into the playoffs. I think four points is very satisfactory. And I think Preston fans, bearing in mind, like you said, there are still key areas of that squad where very, very good low knees were, were were occupying the positions last season in Tom Cannon and Fernandez. They've not yet filled, really. Will Keane, to a degree, has obviously come in. He's had a good start, two goals and an assist in his first two league games. Obviously, they were disappointed to have two goals with an accumulative goal distance yeah, of about seven yards. <laughs> well, right place, they right time. Count. And they all count indeed. And I think Will Keane will be rather chuffed that he's managed to get into those predatory positions to to turn the ball home, even if the second uh, the second one of his, the first on Saturday, probably didn't know a lot about. Nevertheless, for Ryan Lowe, I think he can be really pleased. Four points from a possible six. It's a good start. It's a solid base to build from, as you said. And like you said, I think, obviously, that they need they need bodies in, in key areas. I think they'll come. Uh, I'm glad you may raise point about the young lad at, le- at left-back best. I, I look quite like what I saw of him in, in the highlights package from the Sunderland game. Yes, he gave away the penalty, and like what, like what everybody said at the time, he's a 17-year-old, he's going to make mistakes, but he'll learn from them. It's a really good learning experience to you know go up against somebody like Jack Clark, arguably one of the best wingers in the division, who's not exactly old himself, let's be fair. He's still got the peak of his powers to come, but arguably one of the best wingers at this level. So a really good learning curve for him, and I thought overall he did really, really well. I, I really like the fact that Preston have come out of the trap sort of slowly, not sort of all guns blazing, banging the goals in, but they're getting the results. And we saw that last season, didn't we, when they went on that tremendous un- unbeaten run at the start of run of clean sheets. Whereas this time they do sh- seem to be a little bit more sort of imposing in the final third. So let's hope they, they are going to find that this time. Definitely need a striker. I'm sure it'll come once Premier League squads start to be finalised and Loney's become available. I think that's where Preston will pounce and we'll see what happens there. Fernandez needs replacing. He was excellent last season. But I think Ryan Lowe on the whole can be really pleased with how things have started because there was obviously a little bit disgruntlement towards the end of last season with Preston's style of play, even though they did give the playoffs a run for the money towards the end. I think for, for Ryan Lowe, obviously he came from, from Plymouth Argyle, very, very high, highly thought of and did okay uh, for his first season at Preston. Now, I think he's going to want to take them to that next level. He'll want to kick on. They'll want to kick on. 
And obviously, we know Preston are a club that spend a lot of money. They don't splash the cash. However, they have they have got the ability to make shrewd signings. And the kid that's come in from from Scandinavia, his name escapes me, Jensen. He he looks really good. I really like the look of him. He, he was very good in Preston. I think he scored a couple of cracking goals. I think I want to say it was Aberdeen. I hope it was Aberdeen. They they played in Preston. He scored two wonderful goals. And uh, he looks like he could be quite a fine. Similarly, I think in a weird sort of way, perhaps, as Jan Fleming at Millwall when he came in last year in that number 10 creative position, very unknown quantity from abroad. So let's see how that one develops. But I think we're pressed in four points for a possible six, as I say, very satisfactory. For Sunderland, however, no points on their first two games. They'll be disappointed with that, but they can easily turn this around. They've got the players and the capabilities to do it, but I fear just Tony Mowbray could become under pressure quite quickly after the success of last season. Yeah, weird situation at Sunderland at the minute. Obviously, them and Middlesbrough yet to pick up a point two of the three beaten champ- uh, playoff semi-finalists. And the uncertainty over Tony Mowbray is quite weird. It's felt like at the end of the season, there was a few murmurings after the Luton defeat that he could go, which obviously was complete juxtaposition with most of the fans and how we felt he performed. But it seems like the club aren't quite satisfied with him, which is strange given the progress they made and the fact he took over in a very difficult situation with Alex Neil walking away from the club. He had a very long wait for his press conference in midweek after the cup defeat, which obviously made speculation swirl a little bit. Turns out he'd been in a transfer meeting, which aren't usually scheduled post-match, I think it's fair to say. And it just feels a little bit uneasy, that situation at the minute. I they definitely need a striker, but, but something's not quite right. And it feels like he's been a little bit undermined at the moment by the situation. I suppose you dare say, is he going to be a victim of his own success? I think that's like potentially, potentially a question because nobody in their wildest dreams expected him to achieve what he did last year. And it would have been criminal to have pulled the trigger on him at the end of last season Sunderland, the recruitment this summer has been been quite impressive. They signed a lot of young players, some of whom are from it's overseas. Gamble, though, isn't it? Without they are gambles. But I think Tony Mowbray has earned the opportunity to develop these players because we've seen with him and young footballers in the past, he's got the ability to make them grow and develop. He was key in Harvey Elliott's development at Blackburn Rovers. He was key in Ahmad's development last season on loan at Sunderland. They obviously brought in Joe Bellingham, who there's very, very high expectations for. So I think... I think it would be very, very, very cruel to pull the trigger just yet. Obviously, they've had three defeats out of three, losing in the cup uh, on penalties to Crew. It's not the best start. Nobody can, nobody can deny that. But I do think they've got the ability to turn it around. They've got the players to to make things happen. And let's be honest, with the 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 way that Preston scored both of their goals at the weekend, there was slight fortune about them. That's not taking anything away from Preston. On another day, Sunderland may have taken something from that game. So I. As much as it's a disappointing start, I don't think there's an immediate reason to hit the panic button yet because they've got the players and I think overall the identity is there of an understanding of how he wants them to play. So let's see what happens, but I think it's certainly got to be given a little bit more time yet. However, I don't think the Sunderland hierarchy will be patient enough if this persists. So let's see what happens, but I, I do back Tony Mowbray to turn it around and get results, but he needs to do it quite sharpish, I feel yeah, I completely agree. And then finally, to round off the weekend action, Millwall nil, Bristol City won. Probably a game that should have been nil-nil, if I'm being honest. Not a great deal in it, but a fantastic finish from Matty James to win it. And I've spoken about this a few times, but I am encouraged by the defensive improvements in Bristol City, which continuously undermined them last season. And I've got some numbers to back that up. In seven, In 47 games last season, 
in 2022. They conceded 74 goals across the calendar year. So far in 2023, they've conceded 23 goals in 23 games. So this calendar year, they've conceded one goal a game. And in the entirety of 2022, they conceded about one and a half per game, tiny bit over that. Now, that's quite an improvement in my opinion. Basically, yes, it's half the games, but if you doubled it, there'd be at 46 goals conceded versus 74 over the same number of games. So big improvement defensively, which is definitely helping to win games. Obviously, they've sold Alex Scott this week. That money might not be reinvested because of the wage bill. Nigel Pearson spoke about that. Although they would take the money in in terms of transfer fees, the wages have already sort of been spent. And Alex Scott, despite obviously being one of the best players in this team, wasn't earning a great deal because he was a young young player. And obviously, come through the academy and his contract didn't really reflect where he was and what he'll be earning at Bournemouth, for example. So how much of that will be available to spend is a bit unclear. It's a big loss, of course it is. I think he will go on and play for England. I tweeted this in the week that you see some players come through and pass through the championship like, you know, the first time I saw Ben White on debut for Leeds away at Bristol City, I thought he was going to play for England. Levi Colwell against, um, when he played for Huddersfield, obviously he's not played yet, I think he'll play for England. Mason Mount, Fakaya Tamori, you just see some of these players and you think they're, they're a little bit too good. Mark Guehi as well was one of them where you just can see them pulling on the white shirt and how they'll progress. Alex Scott will play for England or something will have gone wrong, in my opinion. So it is a big blow for Bristol City to lose him. But defensively, they're doing a lot better and they've got players like Sam Bell, like Harry Cornick, like Andy Vyman, like Tommy Conway that can get them some goals at the top end of the pitch. They might need a bit of creativity now in that sort of number 10 area. But if they can add that, maybe on loan, potentially. Maybe they could pay a loan fee out. Then... It's not a bad summer business, I still think, for Bristol City. So I think they've had a good summer so far. There was three draws in the Championship, George. The best game probably was at St Mary's, which we've not touched on in great detail, so we will do now. Southampton 4, Norwich 4, a blockbuster of a game on the South Coast. Gabriel Saru with the pick of the goals, a screamer with his left foot into the far corner. He's really starting to show his quality in the sort of back end of last season into the new season under David Wagner. He's doing really well, great finish. But I have to say, I thought Norwich were very unfortunate not to come away with the win. Giannoulis deemed to a foul, Carl Walker-Peters. Just not a penalty for me. Not even a soft one. It's not a penalty. It, I, I love to say it's a dive, but it's not a penalty in my opinion. So that was really unlucky from a Norwich point of view. But I thought some of Southampton's defending was a bit of a concern. The fourth goal in particular is really poor from Ryan Manning. Doesn't sort his feet out and it, it's buried. Um, into the corner, which should have been the winner for Norwich. But really encouraging signs from Norwich in the first two games. I think a lot of the fan base and particularly some of the pundits, including ourselves, felt quite doom and gloom about them. But they have certainly positively surprised, I think, everyone. I don't think our feelings were too different to how the fans were feeling, particularly with how Ipswich were doing so well across the road to them. Um, I think it's been a a positive start for Norwich and, and a really good game that they should have come away with three points from. Yeah, I fully agree. I was actually looking back and comparing Norwich's start of last season to this um, earlier this morning, actually. And Norwich, they needed four games last season to get to four points and they've achieved that within the first two of this season. So there are, albeit very, very minor, there are signs of progression early doors. And yeah, we raised doubts about the recruitment in terms of the age of the players that they were bringing in. Certainly Ashley Barnes and Shane Duffy. However, a lot of Norwich fans rightly pointed out at the time, we, we do need a few leaders in there. And that's what they've got in those two. And 
when you've got somebody to complement that with the flair and creativity of Gabriel Sara, you're always going to have an opportunity. And I think Norwich and, and the youngster of Jonathan Rowe, of course, who we've got to mention Who's scoring Martin? again. <laughs> I don't know. And I don't think Russell Martin would have been really best watching it back either. Header, wasn't it? it certainly was. I don't think Russell Martin would have been very pleased at all watching that one back um, Saturday evening. However, what a game it was. Let's be honest. It was a breathtaking game. It was end-to-end, ebbed and flow. 2-2 it was by half-time. No, 3-2 to Norwich by half-time, wasn't it? In fact, Jonathan Rowe scoring the third just before half-time. It was a crazy game. I was watching um, Soccer Saturday on Saturday afternoon the, and the goals were flying in at St Mary's and the Sky Report and Mark McAdam down there. He couldn't keep up with what was going on. It was, it was relentless. And Norwich obviously so, so close to getting the victory. I fully agree with you on the penalty in, in the last last closing stage of the game. Kyle Walker-Peters, he's made an absolute meal of that. How the referees bought it, I do not know. It's just a ridiculous, ridiculous decision. And Norwich can feel very, very aggrieved. But I think on the basis, even though it will have hurt at the time, if you'd have offered Norwich a point away at Southampton having won their first game, I think they'd have taken it. Let's be honest, Norwich, they're not one of the teams expected to challenge for the top six this year. But that's not to say they certainly haven't got it in with you know within their credentials to have a go. When you've got someone like Gabriel Sara, you've always got an opportunity. So I think David Wagner will be satisfied with four points in the first two games. And just a word as well uh, of all the sort of not the massive criticism, but the questions we raise about Norwich's recruitment, even though it's very early doors. The addition of Jack Stacey looks like a very shrewd one. Thought he looked really good down that right hand side. A brilliant cross for Josh Sargent's opener, and. You know, there you've got a very, very good championship right back who's obviously replaced Sam Byram, who's now signed for Leeds United. So I think Norwich have got the potential to do something this year. First two games have been encouraging. Obviously, late drama in both of them at both ends of the pitch, scoring late on with Adam Eder against Hull, then conceding late on at St Mary's on Saturday. But like I say, I think four points in those first two games, it's a respectable return when you've had one at home and one away. So let's see if they get on. They've got a game mid-weekend's QPR in the League Cup and then back at Carrow Road again next weekend. So I think Wagner will be, be pleased with how things have started. So let's see how the, the see how they look come the end of the window because I think if they can add a flash flash of quality more, I think Norwich might have it within them to, to maybe spring a surprise or two this season. Rotherham 2, Blackburn Rovers 2, game I was at at the New York Stadium. Rotherham took the initiative in this game after Sam Smodix missed from the penalty spot and... Yeah, I tell you what, Smodic's had the like the epitome of a game of two halves. An absolute shocker, like a three, four out of ten if I'd been on play ratings in that first half. <laughs> Shocking. Missed the penalty. Really bad pass, which allowed a Dauphin to smash in the opening goal. On, on your dimmer, then heads in the second, and you think, game over, 2-0 to Rotherham. They, they physically bullied Ro- Rovers. It was a very typical Blackburn performance for the first hour where lots of nice patterns but just not clinical enough in either 18 yard box both defending and offensively very typical typical performance and then heads went under after they missed the penalty and then of course the red card which it was a farce let's be honest particularly the first yellow card where he's booked for going into the crowd he doesn't go into the crowd if anything he's pushed by the players behind him and the momentum it's not as if he's gone flying into the crowd I, I think it was a farce the second yellow Part of me does really want to see the imaginary yellow card thing stamped out, but having given such a soft yellow card beforehand, you think the referee would take a little bit of common sense and just say, that's your last warning or you're off. But 
they have had quite clear instructions that if you do that, you're going to get a yellow card. So I'm more irritated by the first one than the second one because I do think the, the, the wet gesturing of cards is, is quite pathetic and I'm quite happy to see that stamped out. But I don't want to see players get sent off for two yellow cards in the manner that Onya Dimmer was, which, which ultimately did change the game. I do not want to take anything away from the red card in terms of Rotherham fans will obviously be pretty annoyed about it, but the changes that Blackburn made shortly after the red card on the hour mark, moving Joe Rankin-Costello from right back into midfield, that completely changed the game offensively for Rovers, created so many more chances. And then Smodix, as I say, with the redemption arc of dreams with two goals, the first a little bit fortunate with the deflection, the second one, really nice play from Nylanis, who'd just come on, bringing the ball down and playing it through for Gallagher. Didn't quite get onto it, but Smodix took it around the goalkeeper. Great composure and a good finish. And it really was one-way traffic from the minute Rovers made it 2-1. They... they had lots of chances and opportunities. And I think Rotherham will feel agreed they didn't win the game. And equally, Blackburn will too when you think they scored two, played 40 minutes against 10 men and missed a penalty. So could have gone either way. Rovers could have lost it and they could have won it too. Rotherham will be very annoyed about the red card. And then Watford nil, Plymouth nil. Um, Watford, I think, had the better chances in this one, but some resolute defending. One block in particular from Dan Scar stood out. And four points apiece from both sides is a great start, which they both would have taken two weeks ago. That marks the end of this week's Championship Chat podcast. Please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed wherever you get your pods from, and you'll get the latest episode from us every single week. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram too, at ChamChatPod24. A huge thank you to our sponsors, Cards Accepted, for their support. Make sure you go and check them out at cardsaccepted.co.uk. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier.